Okay, everybody, this is your host, Big John, back once again with a very interesting person to interview. Uh, this this person, I just, I just read about her history and I was totally enthralled. I said, I have to talk to this person. Uh, so let's get right to it. This is Deborah Driggs, everyone. Deborah Driggs. Deborah, hey, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for allowing me this time and having me on your show. Oh, it's 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 a pleasure. And um, for those of you that may not know, Deborah is a model, actress. She's been in the world of business. She's a, I guess, with this motivational speaker. Is that a, is that an appropriate tag for you, Deborah? Yeah, it is. I I would say. Um... I don't know if I'm a motivational speaker, but I get asked to speak on different topics, mainly on how did somebody come from an entertainment background into the business world and have so much success, you know, so I guess that's motivational, you know, I mean, okay. yeah. inspirational, is that better? Inspirational? inspirational, yeah. Okay, fantastic. I'm not a pump you up type <laughs> of speaker. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm not one of those guys either, to be honest with you. But I, but I do get inspired by stories of success and and uh, perseverance, especially which, as we'll find out, uh, you have plenty of. So let's start with the basics. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Southern California, born and raised. I grew up in the South Bay area, Torrance, uh, Redondo Beach, Hawthorne, that whole area. And okay. Then uh, my senior year of high school, I moved down to Orange County and spent a couple years down there before going back to Los Angeles, you know, when I started working in the entertainment business. Okay. Um, what was your family life like? Are you an only child? Do you have siblings or? I have a sister who's seven years younger than me. And, uh, you know, I would say my family life was average. It was decent. Okay. It was, you know... I mean, I, I, I think there was two people that got married very young. My mom got married at 18, had me yeah. when she was 19. I couldn't even imagine that, <laughs> you know? I mean, I have a 25-year-old living with me. I couldn't even imagine her having a child right now. Right, right. So I think, you know, they got married very young and had no tools, nothing in their toolbox. They trauma bonded, had me, and, you know, I waited seven years to have my sister. So my sister and I were such a big age difference. Right. We got along when we were little, but as I got older, we actually, when my parents got divorced, we got separated and she hmm. lived with my mom and I lived with my dad. And that was probably really horrible for both of us i know it was for me because it was just odd that was that by choice that the two of you were split it up? was really it was really not by choice for us it was by choice that nobody knew what they were doing okay and so nobody was, it wasn't you know, a court-ordered thing was it i no, guess it was an agreement no. between your parents maybe no there was no court order it was just you know who could put food on the table type of right. situation. And so because there wasn't any money, you know, they could each manage one mouth to feed, I guess, okay. you know, that's my guess, really, I'm assuming really, what what their situation was. But, you know, I mean, they just both were not really in tune with the reality of raising kids and, and being emotionally available to my sister and I. So we were kind of, it was like a free-for-all. You know, I had no supervision, no structure. I, I got that from ice skating, thank God, because I grew up ice skating and I had to stop when my parents got divorced. Mm -hmm. So I had that structure in ice skating. I had mentors and coaches and people that I really learned from. Okay. And that probably really saved my life because those tools always stayed with me, mm -hmm. but my family was not providing that structure or okay. supervision. As a matter of fact, I can, you know, I can remember just going out with friends or going, you know, being out and nobody really wondering when I was coming home or I had a lot of freedom, too much freedom as a kid. Right. And I think there's, that can be very, hard on a kid when you have too much freedom. Sure. I mean, how old were you when your parents divorced? I was almost 15. 
was 14. And then because they got divorced, I had to stop skating. So it was like two deaths, you know, it was mm. the death of my identity as an ice skater. And it was the death of their marriage and our family unit. Yeah, because from what I from what I read, it seems like you were really shooting to try to make the Olympic trials. Well, that was, you know, that was the goal. You don't skate at 4 a.m. in the morning unless you have (laughs) some type of goal. (laughs) You know, it wasn't like I was skating for fun. I had coaches and and back then we had to do hours of figure eights and, you know, patch. They called it patch. And, you know, you don't do that because you want to have fun with the sport. You do that because you want to advance. And, you know, the more figure tests you pass, the higher you would compete. So, so yeah, that was the goal. You know, I, I really put my heart and soul into it. And, and then on the weekends I took ballet and, and ice dancing classes and, you know, just, you know, it was, it was my whole world. Right. And I would have been so happy to quit school and just skate full time. I can imagine it, but to your point, I can already see some of the foundational uh, groundwork for your discipline in life, right? That uh, the life of an athlete at that young age has to impose, whether you were aware of it at the time or not, I assume, had to impose certain lessons of discipline and self-control, perhaps, that maybe sustained you to this day? Oh, absolutely. Like I said, I, I really, truly believe in my heart that it it saved my life because mm. I wasn't getting that structure anywhere else but on the on the ice skating rink. And I had people that cared how I behaved right. and what I did. And and I it was told when I messed up or when I did something that wasn't appropriate, I was brought over to my coach and explained that this is how we do things. And so I learned some really valuable lessons that carried over into how I conducted other areas of my life as I got older. And when I graduated high school, I barely graduated high school. I really fell apart in high school because I was working full time. Nobody was providing any type of financial assistance. Mm. So I had to buy clothes for school and, and school supplies. And sure. so I worked full time. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, that I was, I grew up way too fast because I was already a sophomore in high school, buying a car, trying to figure out how to get insurance. I was the one that my friends were calling, come pick us up, you know, because I had a car early right 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 when I turned 16. Now are you still living with your with your father at this point or yeah. are you somehow emancipated? I, at this point? I was I was living with yeah. my father but my father was never there. So was that he, because was that because he had trouble perhaps raising a teen a teenage girl or was no, it just had, being a parent? He had a, he had a very odd work schedule. He worked a okay. schedule called Twilight. So he was going to work at four in the afternoon and getting home at one or two in the morning oh, okay. and he would sleep. So I didn't see him. I came mm. home from school. He wasn't there. And then in the morning he was asleep when I left for school. So it was like having a roommate. Okay. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the interesting things I read in your bio, which I, I love the line, if nothing else, it said that, uh, you know, you described your uh, troubles getting through high school um, but one of the lines I loved is you negotiated a, um, what's the, I want I don't want to misquote you. You negotiated a way to graduate with one I did. of your, with your I teachers. I absolutely did. I tell, went tell to, me about that a little bit. That's, well, that sounds was, so fascinating to me. I, I was going to fail and I wasn't going to graduate. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the teacher that was going to fail me. And I just said, what can I do to get mm-hmm. a D minus? I don't want to, I don't. I just want to graduate and move on with my life. And he's like, right. you've never even been to my class. <laughs> and I said, I know, but it's, it was government or something like that. I go, but it's yeah. government. I'm never going to use anything that has to do with government. I just want to move on. And, you know, I was ready to, I had just made the song leading squad at, at the college I was going to go to. And they didn't even know that I had, <laughs> I didn't have the grades to be on that right. squad. That's a whole other story. And so I said, what do I have to do? And he gave me some absurd thing that it was like, there's no way she'll do it. And I did it. It was like some ridiculous amount of pages Mm. that I had to write a a report on the whole book that I never read. And so I did. I went home and wrote a 
a, a report on each chapter of that book that day. <laughs> I did, it was something crazy like that. And I turned it in and he gave me a D minus and I, I graduated high school. I mean, I really, and, but you know that what a great lesson because it's like, no is not no. Right. Right. I, and There's always a way around. No, I agree. And with I, you. But, and I, I was a hustler. I got that <laughs> right off the bat. I was like, Oh my God, if I could do this, like I got a diploma. Right. You know? And that really, really pissed off people that were in my, my circle because they worked really hard. Right. To graduate. I go, yeah, but you're graduating with a different grade point average. Right. I'm graduating right. with a very low. And then, that takes me to the next story, which is sure. I had made the song leading squad for this college. And she calls me into her office when she gets my transcript. And she's like, you can't be on the squad. <laughs> you don't have the grades. And I, again, came up with a solution. I said, well, look, I had a really hard time in high school. I had to work full time. I'm now living in a more structured sure. environment. I'm my mom is now married and I'm living with her. And I said, I'm going to have a much better environment and I'm going to do really well in school. I have the potential to do really well as a student. I mean, this is how I'm talking to this person <laughs> who's telling me I cannot be on the squad. And she said, well, I think what we're going to have to do is put you on probation. I said, great, put okay. me on probation. <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> really all I wanted to do was dance and right. be on the squad. <laughs> and so she did. She put me on probation. And just so you know, because I had her now mm -hmm. as a new mentor in my life, I ended up on the Dean's list. You know, that's, I, I, that's fantastic. I, I yeah. love hearing stories like that. And I have to tell you, the reason that line uh, really resonated with me when I read it was I had a similar experience where uh, on the college level, I was trying to get two degrees in four years. You know, I was trying to, you know, because I love both of them, I couldn't decide. Uh, but the college I went to was a Jesuit university. So they had all these, in my view, silly uh, liberal arts requirements, you know, like you need to take four semesters of theology and language and all that. So I was trying to cut corners so I could, because I was a science guy, you know, I was a biology major, I was a computer science major. And I went to the dean and I negotiated just like yourself. I said, okay, what if I took the hardest class in all these requirements? And I'll make a deal with you. Not only if I don't pass, if I don't get an A, I'll go back and take the lower levels. Do we have an agreement? And he said, sure, that sounds nuts to me, but if you could pull that off, I don't see any reason why you have to go take those other requirements. Exactly. And, I, and I did, you know, and I, it was the only reason I graduated on time uh, with two bachelor's degrees was because I was able to get rid of the stuff. Like, I, you know, I went and like I'm Greek, uh, so I, I I was raised speaking the language natively. So for the language requirement, I said, just give me the toughest Greek course you got. I couldn't care less, you know. I'll you know, and I got an A in that. And then I said, give me the hardest theology course you have. Got an A in that because yeah. I had been raised in a parochial school, so all that stuff was taught to us, you know, at a very young age. You know, speaking ancient Greek and Latin, and you know, learning about the world religions and everything. So I was able to shave maybe six semesters worth of time. Uh, worth of courses, you know, and, and I was able to take all my science courses. So yes, when, when there's I always a way, is the, the moral of the story is, is that no is always a maybe it's there always, it's always like, if you can come up with a solution to the problem that they're not even thinking of, you know, and you know, back then it was like, you oh. went to school, you got your grades, you did that, you know, it was like, everything was so rote. And I was like, ah, yeah. It just, yeah. there has to be a better way. Right. You know? And I'm not, I'm not going to embarrass you or anything, but I, I'm venturing that we're almost pretty much the exact same age. So like, I think the era Maybe that you're I'm talking 58. about. I, I'm totally fine with my age. I'm oh, okay. Like, you know what they say, you never embarrass a lady by mentioning yeah. her age, but uh, yeah, I'm 57. So we're, we're, yeah. we're in the same ballpark in terms of the eras, you yeah. know, that we're talking about. The 80s, baby. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. We grew up uh, in the 80s. We grew up drinking out of a hose, okay? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. We absolutely. survived a lot of stuff. Oh, this yeah, generation like, will have no idea. It's a whole different ballgame. I always, I always laugh at times, uh, but that's a different story. But I, but you did mention dance and yeah. um, that you, you love dance. You love dancing. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I, and I view it as sort of a natural extension of ice skating. I don't know, is that correct? Like, it was, it was yeah. absolutely the natural progression. You know, if I couldn't be on the ice, then I was trying to always figure out, well, what can I do? What, what, right. where, where can I go for this outlet that I have? And, you know, I really wanted to perform. That was the bottom line. So performing was my dream. I just, I loved performing. I loved the attention. I, I'm sure that was my first addiction was attention. So at a very young age, I'd run around like trying to put on shows and everybody look here, you know, and, <laughs> and I was also kind of the funny kid because when the, the stuff, you know, the hard stuff would arise in the family, right? I would always be trying to be funny, you know, just let's not look at that. Everybody let's laugh. And, you know, I was the clown. Right. And so, you know, I had all these like different techniques, so to speak, of how to kind of fix problems that were going on. And, and then when it doesn't work, it can be really, really hard on you because you, mm. you're trying so hard to like keep everything even, you know, right. I could see my mom starting to boil and I try to come in and fix that. And, you know, and that was a lot that weighed on me too, as a kid. Right. So as you were growing up, you said you, you had, you were living with your dad after your parents divorced, but were you still close with your mother? Were you still? Yeah, like yeah I was, her? I would still see her. Yeah, absolutely. I would borrow her car because she had this great, when she started, she got a job. Finally, she was out mm -hmm. of work for a bit. She got a job and she bought this red Trans Am and I, oh. I would borrow her car. She, I don't know why she trusted me with that car, but she let me borrow it. And that was like, I'd have it like Friday, Saturday she'd be with her friends so she didn't right. need it and so she i i was so committed to borrowing this car that i would drive <laughs> she lived in long beach and i was in hawthorne i would drive to long beach to get her okay. car so that i could have it for the weekend i mean that's i was dedicated to having that car for the weekend so uh, yeah can... no we were we were we were definitely you know in touch close, and, close. Yeah. and and as a matter of fact my senior year in high school you know I, I knew that I needed to get out of my environment. It was, okay. I had kind of hit the limit of, I could feel it in my body. I was done, you know, cause it was a tough school that I went to and, you know, I, I just felt that I wasn't, I didn't feel safe anymore. And I called my mom, it was March of my senior year. And I only had a few more months of school left. Right. And I said, can I come live with you? Cause she was remarried. She was more structured and settled and right. She had a really beautiful environment. And I said, can I come live with you? And it worked because her business was in Gardena. So I would drive from Hawthorne to Gardena after school, leave my car and commute back and forth with her. And so, you know, I did that for the remaining of my senior year. And that's why I kind of fell off in high mm -hmm. school because I was so tired. Oh, and, well, but imagine. it was worth it. Yeah. It was really worth it to me because my dad was just kind of, he was just in his own world and he was right. asking me to pay rent. And it was like, I'm only at the time <laughs> I was, I just turned 18 and he was like, you know, with a cigarette in his hand, like, okay, it's time to pay rent. <laughs> and I just had so much resentment toward him because sure. I thought, you know, you, you're incredible. I've been working all through high school. Right. And it was not easy to do that and go to school. I bought all my own clothes and now you're asking me to pay rent. So I call my mom. I'm like, okay, I need to jump ship here and come live with you. Right. And so, so it, what's interesting is I was actually closer with my mom mm -hmm. and, you know, I wasn't really close with my dad. You know, he was just a adult figure in my life. Well, at least you had that sort of relationship with your mom, with, yeah. with one of your parents, because it could really be difficult if you had no yeah. relationship with either of them, obviously. Um, okay, but getting back to dance. So first of all, did you take dance in college? Did you I graduate did. from college? How, how did that go? I did two years. So I did an yeah. associate degree. Um, I did two years. I don't even know if I finished the second year, because what had happened was I was a cheerleader and I was doing dance. And then in my, uh, towards the end of my first year of college, the USFL, the USFL right. football yeah. league started and I went to the Hollywood Palladium to try out for the LA Express cheerleaders. And what, it was me and one other girl that I was cheering with in college. And we had, we knew <laughs> that we were not gonna make the squad because we both had braces. We looked 10 years old. We weren't the typical 
voluptuous cheerleading type. We were very young. And so we just, let's just go to the audition and have fun. Well, it turned out over a thousand girls showed up at the Hollywood Palladium. We had two minutes to run out in front of the judges, do a quick two minute routine and then run off. That was it. And then they narrowed that down to a hundred girls. We made the cut. Not only did we make the cut, but my routine was all over the news. Wow. So I was getting calls. Everybody was calling my house. We just saw Debbie on the news, you know, type of thing. And so I think I had no intention. I had no thought in my mind that I was going to make this squad. But what that did for me was all of a sudden I realized I had something because I was getting picked up by the news. And so I, she and I both made the squad. We laugh about it to this day. We're still friends. (laughs) And um, we both made it with our braces and we were the two youngest on the squad. I can, I can just imagine what that is. So you were like what, 19 or 20 at the time? 19. 19. I can just imagine at that age, like, and I mean, this for like now I'm, I'm, I'm a sports guy. So I'm the LA express. That was the Steve young LA express. Right. So that's, so, so, you know, it was a, it was a high profile team, even though the league only lasted three or four seasons, I think, but at the age of two seasons. Okay. Uh, at that age though, did, what kind of confidence did you get by, by saying, Oh, wow. Like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. It What's was huge. It? And I, you know, you have to understand too, I'm, I'm from LA. So now I'm being brought back to LA. I was living right. in Dana Point. I'm going to this junior college in Mission Viejo. I'm in this very suburban conservative area. I left LA. Now I'm being brought back and my training is back in Hawthorne and I'm being brought back to LA and LA is like in my blood. And so I fit right in with, with the, with the girls, you know, because that's, that's where I was from. And so, so I had, I had that street smart and I had the hustle. And so anything that came up, like we're going to do a promotion at a mall and we'd have to wear, we'd go and we'd do a cheerleading routine and sign eight by 10 glossies. And I was always like, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, (laughs) you know, like I just, I did it all. Right. Well, you said you were a bit of an exhibitionist in that sense, right? That you like. Yeah, it's just very addicted to attention, and and I I knew that I just you I I had that hustle in me. Right. It was like so I so everything that I got asked to do during that time I signed up for, and and then what happened was we started doing like we'd be on Good Morning America or um, not Good Morning America, but like Good Day LA and all these local you know, talking about the cheerleading, the cheerleading squad for LA Express. And then, you know, we performed at the Coliseum. I mean, it was huge. Oh my goodness. Now, so one of the girls that I cheered yeah. with on the squad, she and I left. So this is why I know I didn't graduate college because I left in the, when college, the football season mm-hmm. was over, started my second year of college. She and I got asked to go to Japan to dance mm-hmm. and we left. We were like, yes. And it was like, I couldn't wait to get, I'd never gone out of the country. Right. Okay. So before we get to Japan, which was on my bullet point of list, let me ask you this. You said you got a confidence, obviously, from, from making the uh, Express cheerleading squad w- without expecting to. But let me ask, was, was the confidence, what type of confidence was it? Was it a confidence in your ability to dance? Was it a confidence in your appearance? Was it a confidence in your uh, hey, I, if I put my mind to something, I can get it done. What describe that confidence to me? Because I've known some 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 girls, some ladies who who when they became actresses for the first time, got paying roles, or they became cheerleaders or dancers. Um, a lot of them, their the confidence they had wasn't so much in their performance as much as it was, oh, I'm really attractive. Whereas before, they didn't view themselves as being physically attractive. So was that a validation of your appearance or was it a validation of the entire package? Was it a, I mean, what was it really? That- I laugh, I laugh because it was definitely not my appearance. If you would have seen me back okay. then, I had short hair, braces. I looked 10 years old. Okay. I did not look like the girls on the squad, you know, that came out with these right. beautiful, voluptuous with the big hair yeah. and all of that. I was the complete opposite. I think what my confidence came from was I had 
such a um, performance factor mm. that you were drawn to me because I was very animated and very, you know, people were, were drawn to me. As a matter of fact, I remember the, the very, the last audition, we, we had to audition in front of the owners of the team and um, a couple of the dance uh, judges. There were dance judges and then the owners of the team that judged the finals. And I remember I was towards the end of, at this point now, it was like 50 girls and they were narrowing it down to the 28 girls that right. got chosen. And so half of the girls were not going to make it. And I remember I was towards the end and I had picked a song that was a showstopper. I, that's the, this is the, the, the smartness that I had is I knew that my dance was good, but I needed something even more. And so I chose a song that was like, I knew the whole crowd would go nuts. What song was that? It was, uh, you know, it starts at uh, ABC. Oh, the Michael Jackson. I want you back. I Jackson want you back. Five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And okay. so um, just the minute that song starts, like, boom, boom, you know, it's like this whole thing. And the whole crowd starts screaming. It's like I could have just stood there and I would have <laughs> got, I would have got, because it, I knew to, ch to choose something that the crowd would love. That was so, the so crowd, you had the psychology down too. It wasn't just pleaser. a performance. Yeah, yeah, there you go. It was a crowd pleasing moment. And I just went with it. It was like, <laughs> and so I had that factor. I wasn't a great dancer. I wasn't the most beautiful girl. I just had that factor of people's were drawn to my energy. And, 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 and you know, that is something. And, and it, for the most part, we always call it the it factor. Like you really yeah. can't describe it, but. Yeah, there's what, something, what, there's an energy, there's a, right. a, a vibe. Yeah, there's and that so I had it like right. when I walked in the room, I carried off that vibe and I that carried me into, you know, uh, my auditioning days. I the very first audition my agent sent me out on, I booked mm. and they even said, OK, that's a first. We've <laughs> never sent somebody out on their first audition and they book right. it, you know, so well, for it, them, it was like, OK, we love her. You know, if they knew that I was going to make them money, and I did. I did quite a few commercials with them. Okay. So that so was you, that was the thing. I walked in as if I already had the job. <laughs> it was you like, you know, it was like I didn't have that fear yet. I think the more you're you you are in something, yeah. Whether it's business, whether it's acting, whether it's art, wh whatever it is, the longer you get in it. I think that's when the doubt can start to creep in. And oh, in the beginning, yeah. I didn't have that doubt. I just had the, when I walked in the room, I'm like, I'm here. You oh. wanted to hire me, right? I had that attitude. <laughs> it's, and, it's really funny because um, growing up, uh, I, my first professional, like after I started my own company and all that, but I, I worked for a time on Wall Street. And I was in uh, one of my friends, I remember uh, at one point he played for the Patriots, big guy, you know, um, was a fantastic salesman. And I always used to tell him uh, like, hey, you're selling really intricate technical stuff here. And I said, no offense, uh, dude, but you're as thick as a brick. You don't understand any of this, do you? And he would just let out this hearty laugh. He goes, yeah, that's why I just go in. You know, they look at me, I'm handsome, and I just sell, you know, what? I, and I, it was in that moment, I realized he didn't know enough to be afraid of that's failure exactly at right. that point, you know, that's and exactly right. And at, I, I'm assuming that's what you had at that stage, right? I because had no idea. I didn't, didn't know what to be, right. I didn't know what to be afraid of. I didn't know. Right. I just went, showed up and it was like, I'm here. What are we <laughs> doing? You know, and, and because I had that, that, that feeling when I walked through the door, and it wasn't really, that's why I said, you do what you don't know, you're not afraid of. Right. And it wasn't until I started going on acting auditions. Commercials and acting auditions are very different. Very Commercials different, yeah. are very animated. You're overacting. You could be the worst actor and book commercials, right? Right. Um, and so when I started going out on real acting jobs, I remember, I believe his name was Melvin or Marvin at the Universal lot. I went in to read in 1988, 88 or 89 for Charles in Charge with Scotty Bale. Mm -hmm. And so they brought me in to play Scotty's 
girlfriend. And I go into the audition and I walk in, you know, and it's the first, you know, hey, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I got up because I had this idea of what I was going to do. And before I even said two lines, he goes, stop. He goes, come here, sit down. And this was that moment where I was like, oh, I guess I'm not that good. (laughs) And it was that moment of, he said, girl, when you walked in this room, I would have hired you on the spot because you're exactly what I was looking for, but you need to learn how to act. Mm. And I said, okay, great. So here's where I knew what to say next. I said, I don't know why I knew this, but I said, where would you recommend I study? And he said, oh, there's two really, two studios I can think of off the top of, and I wrote them down in his office and left there, called both studios. I was in an acting program the next week. It was a two-year Meisner technique, really intense. They told us when we signed the contract to to study that we weren't allowed to audition, that we were literally going to learn this technique. And so I signed up for it not knowing, you know, what, how it would, what, what was going to happen. That just put me in a whole new direction, but, but I didn't have fear until I started going to acting class, which is ironic. Yeah. I know what you mean. And I realized, oh my God, there's work involved. Right. (laughs) Now, you know, it's it's because I like shortcuts. (laughs) I have to admit, I'm just one of those people. I like shortcuts. I'm a hustler. Right. And I was always finding ways to get a line on a set and get a commercial. You know, I was hustling. And when I got into the acting class, it was the first time that I had all of a sudden had some fear coming over me right. and that people were actually seeing me. And I was like, a really, really good lesson for me because, you know, it's like, okay, here we go. Now I'm in this portion of my life. See, now, it's interesting to me, because as I was going through your, your bio, I was saying to myself, see, now, I, I know you went on that tour of Japan, you said initially, right? So that was your, your first tour uh, as part of a dance troupe, right? Where you went. Yeah, and it was just, you know, it was, it was, you know, back then in Japan, they had a lot of these dance clubs. They were a little right. bit behind America as right. far as they had these, and the girls were wearing poodle skirts, and it was it was kind of an odd time and I felt like I was in the twilight zone. It was all colors and everything was big and the clubs were big and glamorous and great DJs. And so these clubs that we worked at were, one was called Jubilation and the other one was called the Bamboo House. And they were right on Shinsaibashi, this very famous street in Osaka. And we would really perform, go out into the back go downstairs, go upstairs to the other club, perform. And we did this, we did six shows a night. And basically we were go-go dancers. And that didn't terrify you? See, to me, that would be terrifying. Going to a foreign country, how old were you? 20, 21, maybe? I turned 21 in Japan. So there you I go. Thought, yeah, see, I was 20, 21. Yeah, and that, see, to me, that would be, uh, like, I wouldn't understand why that wouldn't be the first time you were like, perhaps not terrified, but, like, oh my God, where am I? What did I get myself into type of thing? But I guess no, you're saying it was, it just I came was, naturally, right? Nope. I was really into it. Okay. I just loved it. I didn't want to leave Japan. As a matter of fact, I found a studio. It was called Pineapple City. <laughs> this is, Japan was very odd. It was like, right. it was colorful and wild. And <laughs> so I loved the culture and there was a studio called Pineapple City and and it was when aerobics were huge. Right. Right. Just like kicking your leg up a hundred times. Like, oh my God, this the doctors loving these crazy (laughs) people doing aerobics and jumping around. And so aerobics was really popular. So I taught a stretch class at this studio and they kept me, they they kept me for another three months. I stayed in Japan six and a half months. They took over my visa so I could stay three extra months and teach at their studio. Like, I just was like, my, my Lisa, the girl that I was with, she's like, we got to go home. And I'm like, no, I'm staying. I'm going to teach stretch classes at the studio. She's like, oh my God, you're crazy. You can't stay here by yourself. I'm like, yes, I can. <laughs> I didn't so, want to leave. I loved it. it. It sounds like you had a great time, which I, which I think is so key. Like a lot of Americans, especially don't get out of the country. So they're really not exposed to different cultures and seeing how, you know, how other, not that I'm saying it's better or worse, but just, you know, just experience it. Now, 
when you got back from that tour, uh, I read that there was the infamous Playboy audition. Those were your words, I think, not mine. Well, you know, it well, wasn't how was right... it infamous? What happened? No, it wasn't right when I got back from the tour. When I got back from the tour, I moved to LA and I started, I got an agent. I was doing commercials. I had started modeling. And in 1989, my agent called me. So I had already, I'd been back for a while. Oh, okay. I actually went, I actually went back to Tokyo before Playboy. Okay. And I was going to model in Tokyo and I didn't do so well there because I'm, I'm five, six and mm. just a bigger competition for modeling in Tokyo. So I didn't do so well. So I came back home and um, it wasn't I'm sorry, until five, five, six, not being tall enough or not being... for, for modeling. Yeah. It's, it's, that's short for modeling. And so oh, when I went oh, to Tokyo, okay. I'm competing against girls that are five, nine, okay. you know, five, 10. And so, you know, I tried to say I was five, seven and they were like, yeah, no, you're five, five. Okay. Six. I got you. They okay. knew, they knew, they knew the deal. <laughs> so I came back. And so in 1989, my agent called and she said, Playboy's coming out with a book and it's called the lingerie book. And they'd love to see you for the cover. And so I said, Playboy, like Playboy magazine. And she's like, yeah. Wait, wait, you got, you were auditioning for the cover right off the bat? For the, so it was a new book that Playboy was coming out okay. called the lingerie book. Okay. It hadn't come out yet. And they were looking for girls for the cover of this new oh, book okay. called the lingerie book. And so I said, well, is there any nudity? What, you know, that all I knew about Playboy was it was a magazine for sure. men and there was nudity. She said, I don't think so. This is for the cover. Well, I had driven past the Playboy building thousands of times. And here I was going inside for the first time to this audition. And I signed in, I had my book with me and they gave me a robe and told me to take everything off and that they were going to do some Polaroids. And I said, hmm. oh, I'm not here for that. I'm here for the lingerie book audition. Okay. She said, well, everything we do, we, we need to see your body. Hmm. I was like, okay. You know, right away, I was like, red flag, you know. Right, yeah. And so um, I ended up taking everything I left on my undergarments and went in and the photographer kind of laughed, you know, and I did the Polaroid. I left. I just thought that couldn't have gone worse. And it was just, for me, it was like, I'm in the Playboy building. That's exciting. Next, you know. And so I left there thinking there's no way, you know. It didn't mm -hmm. go well, and they're not going to hire me for that job. But what happened was I got a call saying, we want to test you to be a playmate, a centerfold. Mm. And I was like, wait, what? I think you're confusing me with somebody else in the audition. They're like, no, we want to test you. And we want to test you next week. And I was like, mm. so I called my agent. She's like, yep, it's true. They called us and they want, to, they want, to, they want you for a centerfold. So being... An LA girl living in LA, you know, I, I'm not, I'm from LA, you know, and I'd already been working. So, you know, we, I ran it by everybody. And in 1989, Playboy was the number one magazine in the world. So right. this had the potential to really open doors. Sure. Really, it did. And so I thought, well, I'm, I was so used to doing swim, swimsuit modeling that I was like, okay, let's do it. And so I went and did the six week shoot and ended up being the March 90 centerfold. And then I was on the cover of the April 90 issue, ended up shooting like three covers for Playboy right away. They weren't all in America. I did some covers for the Europe editions and okay. the Asia editions. And I did a cover for a movie that came out about Playboy and being a centerfold. They used one of my covers for that mm. movie. And I, I also got to be on the cover of that lingerie book. <laughs> so it was just a wild ride. I mean, yeah. I, I didn't, I would never, if somebody would have told me someday you'll be on the cover of Playboy, I wouldn't yeah. have believed it. I, 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 I always mean to ask, um, is, is that the sort of thing that you were very, like, did you have any qualms with nudity before you went to Playboy? Did you? No. Uh, so, so it wasn't an issue. It was just getting no. over the hump, so to speak, of saying, no. "Okay, I'm, I'm doing this type of thing." No, for me, it was more a concern of, you know, I had a few regular jobs that I had that were I wasn't going to get anymore because back then, 
you know, you couldn't do both. You couldn't do mm. a wholesome catalog and then be in the be in Playboy. So mm. today it wouldn't matter, but back then it was a little more conservative. Right. And so I knew that there were going to be certain jobs I wasn't going to be brought in for anymore. So I had to weigh it out. And and obviously you decided <laughs> it was worth worth the risk or worth the opportunity to take to to go into Playboy. Yep. Um, looking back on it, any regrets doing Playboy, or was it a positive no. experience all the way through? No regret. No. Okay. Fantastic. I have to ask you what what was Playboy Team Extreme? Oh, the Playboy Extreme Team. So Extreme Team. I'm sorry. So one yeah. of the girl. Yeah. So one of the girls started. Her name is Danelle Fulta, one of the centerfolds playmates and she started the playboy extreme team and really what she her goal was to show that we weren't just this pretty face that we were we could be badasses too really and so she found out somebody had told her well you know deborah she mountain bikes because i would mountain bike these mountains and she called me she said i heard you mountain bike do you want to come to one of our training camps and i said well tell me more about it and I said, well, I've never ran a day in my life. I, I mountain bike, but I'm not, you know, she said, don't worry, start running now. By the time you get to the boot camp, you'll, you'll be okay. So I started running every day. I hired a trainer and I started running. And by the time I got, got to the boot camp, I was running about three miles. And so then I went through the boot camp and then I was running five miles. Next thing you know, I'm running six miles. And that's kind of how it started. And then we started doing these, they're called high-tech adventure series and they're 12 hour races. They can be anywhere from six to 12 to 24 because you have to hit certain checkpoints to move on. Right. And so they're, they're really intense. And then, um, and then we got invited to do the eco challenge. And at that time I had three kids and I remember my, my husband saying, that's too dangerous so I didn't go to do that but I was I was on the team like it was me Danelle and um Caitlin that were the three that were going to go and I had to give up my spot because my 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 husband was very worried okay for my safety and, and I have to admit that's the first time I've heard that term husband before for an ex-husband so uh uh, I'll, 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 I'll use that one going forward. Uh, yeah. but much speak, more endearing than, you know, the X, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so just to, just to sort of be complete here, you were married to Mitch Gaylord, who was an, an Olympic, uh, gymnast, right. Gold medal yes. winner, I think, uh, gold, silver, and a couple of bronzes, right. In 1984. Yep. Uh, when did you guys meet initially? We met in the acting program. Okay, so that would be. So we in... met. We met in 1989. Okay. 1989, 1990, and we got married in 92. 92. Okay, uh, so it wasn't a love at first sight thing. Like you, you had time to know each other initially. No, we actually. It's funny because there's two years, and during first year, we really didn't talk very much. I mean, hmm. a little banter here and there, but nothing really. And then at the end of the first year, we got paired up to do a scene called the girl on the Via Flaminia. And we started rehearsing and that's, you know, sparks are flying and, you know, chemistry, here we go. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so we started dating and it, nothing, it wasn't serious until the second year. And towards the end of the second year, it got, it kind of took another, took another, what do you call? Level? Step. Went to, went to, another, went to another level. level. Yeah. yeah. Got, okay. We got more serious and we decided to live together and and then we got married in 92. Okay. Um, now it says you got divorced in 2004 uh, and you said you have three children, if I'm correct? I have three. Three. So at that point, you had to go back into the workforce. This is like, you have, like, we're literally going down the chain of events. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm very thorough. I told you I'm a scientist. I apologize. But, um, I don't know. Uh, people might be like, okay. And then, yeah, no, I promise we'll wrap it up uh, yeah. in a fun way. But, but what I was trying to say was this is where you sort of transition another trans transition point in your life, right? Because you had to re-enter the workforce at this point. Was the entertainment? No, I, had to, I had to enter 
the workforce. Enter the workforce. I was only, I had only ever known really acting and modeling and performing. I really hadn't, hadn't really held a job since high school. And was that shut off to you at that point? Or was that just not something you were interested in anymore? What? Entertainment. No, I always have had an agent. Okay. All throughout my life, I've never not had an agent. So I always was going on auditions. And even in Park City, I raised my kids in Park City. Even there, I hosted a two-hour morning show, unscripted morning show. And, you know, I always kind of found a way to incorporate, whether it was a print ad or a commercial or an industrial, you know, I, I was constantly auditioning and keeping, trying to keep up. I took a couple acting classes when I lived in Park City, just to keep that up, just to keep okay. that energy up. And, you know, I, I, I think it's really good when you're, especially if you're creative, you have to kind of feed that, feed that part of your soul. You know, when you don't feed it, it it's, that can cause, it does, I know it causes heartache because you're missing something that you really love to do. Oh, and I really do. I love, I love the creative process. I loved being on sets, not just because I was in front of a camera, but because there's so many elements to learn from and so many people to learn from that it's, it's, it's the process that's really engaging. Yeah. I, I believe me, I, I not sympathize, commiserate with you after, um, after my show on Sirius got canceled. Uh, I, I was talking into spoons because I still had that need to have someone listen yeah. to me, you know, and uh, thank goodness for podcasting when it came around because I was able to fall back on that. I had already had podcasting before I got my radio gig and I started late in life. I didn't get my radio gig till my forties. And uh, I know what you mean when that's taken away from you, you, you feel almost lost like a drift, yeah. you know? So I certainly sympathize with that, you know, that you always want to see if you can stay involved in, in something like that. Um, but okay. So, so life. Yeah. Goes so on. I, yeah. So I, I get divorced. I have three kids and I have, I am now kind of in a situation where I have to contribute financially to my life and taking care of my kids. And so I did many different odd jobs and I got my real estate license then I got a job in New York working for a print procurement company. And then from that, I ended up getting my life insurance license. And it was really the life insurance that I found my niche because life insurance is really about people. It's, mm-hmm. it's just calling people. It's something that everybody really needs. I don't, it's very rare that people go, I don't need it. You know, right, it's right. something that's really valuable to have. And and so, and it, it's a solution to a lot of tax and, and, uh, you know, challenges that people have. So it was a great product and I found something that I enjoyed selling. Mm. And so my first real success was in 2012, 2013. I was like the top producer for several of the companies that I was licensed with. And I, you know, and they would send me gifts and letters and say, I was invited on cruises, but I was I had my kids and they were in school and I was like, that's great. I don't need to go on a cruise, but you know, they were like, who is this woman? You know, cause I wasn't captive (laughs) to them, but I was selling their product. They, you know, they had a great product. And so I was selling it quite a bit of it. And, and so, yeah, I had really great success for a few years in that industry. And then I kind of just rode that wave And it was around 2017 that I started getting that feeling again, like I need to feed that part of myself that was creative. And I thought, I really want to write a book. And I was also on a healing journey. I got on this, I started realizing that I had a lot of stuff in my life that I had never really taken the time to heal. I did not heal from my divorce. I did not heal from just childhood issues that were still there that were just like Hmm. open wounds that I just really hadn't taken the time to look at. So in 2017, I kind of went on a healing journey and it, and it lasted until about 2019. And then when COVID hit, I was like, I'm writing a book. It's time I'm going to write a book and I'm going to, 
And then I ended up booking a movie. I, I worked on a movie in 2021. Oh. I write a weekly blog now. And I am really on this healing journey. I coach people. So I, I, I have a few clients that I work with. Okay. But my love is I love to write. And so I, I write a weekly blog. I have a book coming out in July called Here Comes the Sun, okay. where I was just asked to collaborate on this beautiful project. It's all women authors, and we each wrote a chapter. It's kind of like a chicken soup for the soul. Okay. And what's, the, what's the title being, again? Here Comes the Sun. Here Comes the Sun. And it's, it's really about women's stories of overcoming something. Mm. And so it's going to be really a beautiful, beautiful book. And then I have a book coming out in October. Hold it up. Son of a Basque. Okay. So this is the galley. But anyway, okay. this is a book that my grandfather wrote. Son of and, a Basque. And I found it in a box, type, typed papers all out of, you know, just had to put it right. all in order and re-edit and do all that. And it's really his, it's, it's a historical fiction. It's loosely based on his life. And... What's really beautiful about it and really got me thinking, okay, I'm for sure writing a book is that a lot of the stuff in this book, I didn't know. Hmm. And, and it's such a shame to me now that all my grandparents are gone, that I didn't take the time when they were alive to really interview them and get to know them right. and know these beautiful stories that are in this book that I'm just now learning about. And there's really nobody left to talk about it with. And so my, my, my goal is that people will listen to my story and be inspired to go and interview their relatives now while they're here with us, because gosh, finding this, I was so like the feeling that I had reading this book and putting it together and putting the pieces together. And it's like putting a puzzle together, so sure. like putting this big puzzle together and figuring out the pieces and I thought, God, if I just had one more day to right. just ask these questions, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful tale of the stuff that he overcame. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting how generations kind of repeat themselves? Yes. And also, it's very interesting to me that all the trauma, this is one grandparent and all the trauma that he endured hmm. that gets passed down to his kids that then right. gets passed down to his grandkids. And I thought, here we are breaking generational cycles of trauma, like just, and this is just one person's right. story that I know. I don't even know. I know a little bit about my grandmother. I know a little bit about my grandparents on my dad's side, but God, if I had known all of their stories and traumas, how much sense that would have made with the parenting that my parents had, right. what they were bringing to the table from generational patterns of just trauma and trauma bonding. And so it's just this great lesson, you know, to really learn about your relatives, even if you're not crazy about them or you don't, you know, whatever the story is, learn about their, sure. their past and their history because to, to find this gem, you know, and I was on a mission when I, when I, I told my mom, send me the boxes, send me everything. Cause I was on a mission. I was like, you know, if somebody writes something, it should be published. Mm -hmm. It just should. And, and, but it was even more beautiful than that. When I read it, I was, I read it like three times. Cause I was like, wow, there's a lot of stuff. That's so, so intriguing and interesting. And, right. and so now I'm uh, my new project is I'm making it into a screenplay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes, but you know, this took two years, you know, it's, I mean, it was just such a labor of love. So that's coming out in October. And then I'm working on my book because that inspired me. I was like, oh, I, cause I, you know, people say all the time, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. Right. But after putting this together and doing this book, I for sure will write a book because I see how important it is to leave this for my kids, you know? Because all of our lives, they have something to offer. Sure. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you. Know? you. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, I, I always used to love listening to my father and my uncles 
who uh, immigrated to this country and yes. the conditions that they grew up under, under Nazi occupation. And um, when I went back to Greece with my father towards the end of his life, he said, ah, let's go back to the old country for Christmas. Just me and you, the two men, you know? And so we went back there and I met his aunt who was in her nineties. And to listen to her stories of yeah, escaping, uh, of, of escaping Juan Perón's Argentina, the secret police, because she was yes. an agitator. And then, the stories of her jumping on the first boat leaving port because they were going to kill her. They were going to capture her and kill her for being an agitator. She jumps on the first boat. She thinks she's on her way to freedom. She literally doesn't know where she's going. She ends up in Spain. And of course, that's when uh, Franco's fascists took over. So now she's an agitator in Spain. And then she makes her way back home to Greece. But now there's a monarchy there. So now she's an agitator in Greece. And when she's telling me this story, this shriveled little old woman, barely four and a half feet tall at the table, and I'm ch- not struggling, but I have to remember all my old Greek that I wrote because she doesn't speak English. She only speaks, uh, she speaks the language of every country she fled from. So, yeah. you know, uh, Portuguese, Spanish, uh, Greek, you know. Uh, and, and I was listening like for days on end, just sitting there listening to her, like, oh my God, what happened here? What happened here? What happened here? Where are you going to read that anywhere else? You know, you, you're not. You no, have it's to. Be, beautiful. And, it's yeah. so beautiful because there's just like, and the fact that she was there to be able to talk about it. How fortunate was I that yeah. I, you know, my father decided. What I like, would give. Yeah. Let me tell yeah. you what I would give to just have one more opportunity with all my grandparents to just sit and interview and just find out every little detail of their life. And so that's my hope is that I inspire people with this book to really go and find out all these details. That's a great mission to have, to be honest with you. And, and, and also to pass it down to our own kids, you know, to get yes. them interested in their own history and, and to understand where they came from and why. And like you said, the technologies change, the, the societal wrapping changes, yep. but those issues don't, you know, no. you know, that's why Shakespeare's plays resonate, right? The problems they still had in Shakespeare's day we still have them, right? Jealousy, love, rejection, uh, whatever, uh, mischief, you know, so um, absolutely. Uh, and that was a great anecdote. So I always like to end my interviews, Deborah, with some silly questions. Uh, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw some at you. What's your favorite sport to watch on TV? If any. No, that's a good question. Um, I really like to watch, obviously, the Winter Olympics. I like to watch the ice skating. I like to watch basketball. Oh, NBA or college? NBA. Who are you pulling for in the finals? Lakers. Lakers? Oh, I, well, a Lakers I'm a Laker. Fan. I'm a Laker fan. You're a so. Laker fan. Yeah. So they're not in it this year, so you no, can be excused for that. Uh, are you still active in any sports or activities? Hiking, yoga, walking. Okay. And obviously you're still in great shape just by looking at you. You look like you're in fantastic shape. Um, And just because most of our audience is male, uh, who would you consider to be the most successful Playboy bunny in history? Oh gosh, that's a good one. Um, Well, she was my roommate and she did probably the most covers of any Playmate. I would have to say Pam Anderson. Oh, Pam Anderson. Okay. Yeah. Very, very, certainly very famous. Uh, And other than yourself, who would you rate as the most beautiful bunny of all time? Not necessarily successful. Yeah. Who would you say Um, is the most beautiful? Gosh, that is really a good one. Um, Without meaning to insult whoever you leave out. Let's, let's, let's throw that caveat out there. No, the most beautiful, that's really tough because God, there's, they're all beautiful, right? Really, God, they're all uniquely different. But let's say from my year, I would say uh, Lisa Matthews had just that beautiful girl next door, but for the beautiful, uh, well, Rosie and Renee Tennyson were absolutely stunning they still mm-hmm. are they've they've tested the the age test for sure mm-hmm. they're still stunning um who else well anna nicole smith was drop dead gorgeous yes she was drop dead yeah. gorgeous yeah, yeah that's a that's a, that's a tough one yeah I, there's so many i mean i could i could go absolutely. down 
the list. It's a bit of a curveball, and, uh, and yeah. to some extent, I enjoy tossing those at my guests. Yeah. But um, your favorite movie of all time? My favorite movie of all time. Now, this is a tough one. So one that I really like a lot, and the reason why, I thought it was one of the best scripts. I thought it was the best acting. And it's Ordinary People. It came out in mm. 1984, I believe, or maybe even sooner, maybe 1981, 80 or 81, with Mary Tyler Moore, Tim Hutton, right. and Donald Sutherland. It was Robert Redford's first directing. And I remember seeing that I was either a junior or senior in high school. And I remember seeing that movie in the theaters and thinking, this is a great movie. Mm. Like it just, it always stuck with me and I've seen it several times since it, it really, it had everything in it, just everything. The acting was beautiful. I think Tim Hutton won the Academy Award at right. one best picture. Yeah, that was, it was a very highly decorated picture. Yeah. Is that the sort of the genre you enjoy that sort of? Well, that one just always stands out to me. It's in mm -hmm. my top five. I mean, then, you know, I, as far as romantic comedies, I always like movies like Romancing the Stone. Right. Um, you know, I thought uh, Douglas and Turner had such great chemistry. Sure. I love movies like Paul. I like Ter Quentin Tarantino. I think um, True Romance is in my top three. Okay. There you, you know, go. there's just every actor in that movie. I could watch every scene there. Just the acting blows me away. Yeah. That's yeah. okay. I, it's just one of those things. Cause it, like, I think like if you were to ask me all my top movies would be comedies for the most part, I acknowledge that other movies can be great, but I'm just a com. I'm a oh, I have a lot of comedies, you know, that yeah. I think are just, you know, a fish called Wanda. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Fish called Wanda. Yeah. I, and I don't mind. Disappointed. <laughs> have a lot of comedies yeah uh okay the last one favorite type of music or favorite performer musical performer oh this is this is brutal uh well i love the stones mm. um but you know i listen to so much different kind of music. i listen to soundtracks i listen to classical and I, I that's a tough one for me just because i i'm all over the board i don't really have a favorite i I would say Tom Petty and, and the Stones, for me, I can listen to. If I was stuck on a desert island and I had to choose, it'd probably be Tom Petty or the Rolling Stones. Oh, those, those are great choices. You can't go wrong with those. I mean, personally, me, I grew up in New York. I'm a, I'm a Bronx boy. So for me, it's always like the Ramones or, you know, one of these, those early yeah. uh, CBGB bands, you know, Talking Heads or something like that. But Yeah, I love yeah. Talking Heads. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't want to be stuck on an island with them, but... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was the, what was um, um, his latest uh, American uh, ooh, American Utopia? Was it uh, the lead singer from the Talking Heads? And now I'm drawing a complete black. He just had a Broadway play, and they it was a, it was a special on HBO. Really oh, fantastic, okay. American Utopia. I think if you get the I chance, check it out. It was pretty good. Okay. But anyway, Deborah, thank you very much. Please tell us uh, your website, and once yes, again, tell us to, about your so, books. Yeah, go to my website, which is deborahdriggs.com. I have a weekly newsletter that comes out. So it's a really good way to stay in touch with me and know when the books are coming out. I know, for example, uh, the Here Comes the Sun is going to have a 48-hour launch where it's going to be like $1.99 to get it on Kindle or, or whatever, but only for those 48 hours. So there's a launch date for that. So all this information will be on my website. I have a weekly blog that will come to, to you in the mail if you sign up for my newsletter. And right now I'm giving away a free gift, which is a really fun, fun thing. If you sign up for my newsletter, I have a free gift. Okay. So besides the blogs and um, the books that I have coming out, I also, all my social media is linked on my website. Okay. So it's really easy to find me. And, um, and then also I have a movie coming out very soon. Okay. It's been, it's been going to all the film festivals and doing really well. It's called Neon Bleed. And so that's going to be fun to look for. And yeah. Well, Deborah, that's... thank you so much for joining yeah, us today you. on the big questions. And uh, you were a pleasure, absolute pleasure thank to you. talk to, and you were very forthcoming. Um, 
for those of you that may not have noticed, this was not edited. Deborah just talked all the way through this, answered all my dopey questions with a <laughs> smile on her face. So as always, I, I love people who love to listen to me talk. So Deborah, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. And uh, you've got an open invitation anytime you want to come back. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone.